Ecclesiastes chapter 11, two chapters to go. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, and we come back to a very familiar theme. I've, I've told you all the way through this book that Solomon is, is incredibly cyclical in this book. It's a lot like um, studying the book of 1 John. John states something, and then he says a few things about it, and then he comes back and states something, and he says something about the second thing he said, and goes back, and it's almost like a, a, a spiral where he keeps circling the, the same thing over and over. And Solomon is doing the same thing here in Ecclesiastes. But as you get toward the end of the book, the sections shorten, and the staccato, fast-paced crescendo toward his conclusion. Tonight we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes, first, excuse me, first six verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Let me just read that to set it in our minds. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or to even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, or whether the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. It should be relatively clear by now, after being in Ecclesiastes, actually for a better part of a couple of years, uh, on and off on Sunday nights, that we live in a broken world because of sin. Our bodies are broken. Our genetics are broken. Our friends are broken. The government is broken. Our cars break. The creation is broken. And it's all to remind us that this isn't it and that there will be one day a restoration of God's order and God's creation both in people who he's redeemed and of the earth that he's created Solomon begins to be very clear about these realities and dangers of living life where? Under the sun, which is outside of the garden after the fall, and this side of heaven. We're, we're in this in-between. He begins his final descent out of these kind of high clouds of Ecclesiastes, of, of being highly philosophical. It gets very practical in these last two chapters. This time he's addressing head-on the reality of what it means to manage the risks of living in a broken world. And there are risks. We can't deny it. We wouldn't try to. Driving is a risk. Uh, we're working with uh, my son Mark on, on uh, his driving right now. And if you ever want to know anything that you do wrong as a driver, just teach a 16-year-old how to drive. And then let him sit in the car when you drive. And you will find out everything that you do wrong. There's risks in driving. There's, there's, there's work hazards. Flying has risks. Exercise has risks. Dating has risks. Walking, not to mention the risk of walking in high heels, has risks. Why? 
Why high heels? I, I, I mean, as a man of limited stature, I just, I just don't know why you would want to do that to the rest of the world. Let's close in prayer. No, we won't do that. <laughs> Eating has risks. Purchases have risks. I just recently purchased something, and you know, it costs X, and for X amount more, you can warranty it for two more years. What, are you telling me when I'm buying this that it's a risk for at least the next 24 months to break? I mean, that's not a good selling point to say we want to make sure that it's going to be good for you. Wouldn't you make sure on your own? But that's another sermon. Actually, it's not. It's just a complaint. Um, we can go on and on. Relationships have risks. We live in a world that's a minefield of risks. It's hard to determine any, any category of life that doesn't involve risk. King Solomon has taught and established for several undeniable chapters that the facts that we encounter in the world crescendo into the decisions about minimizing and managing risk. Life is vanity, it's fleeting, it's temporal, it's steam off that cup of coffee, it's there for a moment, happiness is, and then it doesn't last. Our world is broken, this life is under the sun. We find ourselves in the midst of a world of sin, of suffering, of injustice, of inequity, of tragedy and unfairness. But God keeps telling us through the pen of Solomon, he is still in a risk-laden world, still in absolute sovereign control of every molecule and atom and of every star and galaxy. As he closes his reflection on life, and let me say again, remember Ecclesiastes 12.1. It's addressed to young people. Remember your creator in the days of your youth means he's writing entirely to who? Junior hires and senior hires and collegians. And we look at Ecclesiastes as this really deep, philosophical, hard-to-understand book, and he has young people gathered around him saying, remember, remember these things. He's wrapping up his thoughts beginning here in chapter 11, and he's getting really, really specific. Rapid fire, successive points of conclusion to the first 10 chapters. So we're going to hear some things repeated and punctuated. Well, in the first six verses here of chapter 11, Solomon answers the question of, what's the use? Okay, if, if, if life is, is hard, if, if the world is broken, if God is sovereign, what, what's the use? In other words, if God has already sovereignly ordained everything, and everything that, that, that is included in a broken world is still under his sovereign control, then how should we live with these tensions? How should we live with these risks? How should we live with these anxieties? Typically, or, or specifically rather, he's saying, I want to give you encouragement. After telling you for 10 chapters that the world is difficult and broken, take a deep breath. I'm going to tell you how to manage it. Notice I didn't say, nor will Solomon say, fix it. Or find a way outside of it. He says, here's how to manage a risk-laden world. One of the most daunting issues of our life, I think, is ignorance of the future. And just pause for a second and think about that. How much of our time is spent managing the risks of the future, thinking about the risks in the future that we can't even get to yet? Any activity is met with some measure of risk. Everything involves risk. And Solomon, the wisest man to ever live except Jesus himself, zeroes in on the risky business of life and begins chapter 11 with very gut-level, gut-wrenching, practical advice 
on how to manage it. Notice that he emphasizes the phrase, you do not know. He uses it three times, 11, 2, and 5, and 6. And he also says in verse 5, you cannot understand. So how are we to live and work and play and hope in light of such ignorance? And there are basically two responses. First, looking at, uh, at, the, at the ignorance of the future and the difficulty of life, you could just give up, live a life of fearful depression and hopelessness, unproductiveness, lack of productivity, just say, well, I, I, it's not worth it. There are institutions for these kinds of people with every imaginable kind of phobia. Or we could take Solomon's counsel that ignorance of the future should lead us not to inactivity and despair, but to diligent labor and leaning into the risks with some God-ordained instruction. So we're going to break it down real simple tonight. Uh, Hopefully this is a little shorter since it's only six verses. We're going to find four safeguards for managing the risks of our broken world. Four safeguards for managing the risks of a broken world. And that's the world that Solomon has given us and described to us and laid in our laps after 10 chapters here in chapter 11. Very, very practical advice now. He starts with this. Number one, be sensible with your resources. Be sensible with your resources. This might surprise some people that Solomon has such advice on finances. But finances really reveal where our heart is, reveal where our, what our heart wants. We've said it over and over. When I was a young man, I was discipled, and, and my, uh, my friend said, show me your calendar and your checkbook, and I'll tell you all of your priorities. Verse 1. It's a verse that's got a lot of interesting interpretations, but I think it's really simpler than it might look. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. What in the world is that talking about? Who likes soggy bread, right? I mean, I've been to the the little uh, ponds and taken bread and thrown it in for the koi, for the goldfish, and after a few seconds, the bread doesn't look anything attractive at all, does he? Is this really talking about taking your bread and throwing it on water and then retrieving it after a few days? No, not at all. A lot of debate about this verse. Some think it means to be charitable, to give your resources away, and you'll be rewarded. But that principle doesn't always hold to be true, so I doubt that would be right. A better way to understand these first two verses is to look at them in context with each other. He's talking about investments. Now, what I find very interesting is that Solomon uses bread metaphorically in the same way that you and I do. It's kind of old. Maybe it was in, in, in 70s or 80s, but we talked about, you know, I'm making bread as if that's, that was a synonym for money. Remember that? You know, it was bread. Same thing is going on here. Bread was the staple of their diet, and bread was, was synonymous with what you could do with your resources and the collection of your resources. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters. What is he talking about here? Well, we still use that euphemism for money, but I think he's actually talking about diversified foreign investments. You say, what in the world does that mean? Listen, in 1 Kings chapter 9, just listen. Verse 26, King Solomon also built a fleet of ships in Ezion Geber, which was near Elioth and on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Haram sent his servants with the fleet, sailors who knew the sea along with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and took 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. 1 Kings 10, 22. 
Uh, I, for, for the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of Haram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish came and bringing gold and silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. He cast his bread on the waters. He invested in foreign commodities. Now, this isn't a, a lesson on investment. We're going to see in the next verse, it's really a lesson on diversification and not putting all of your hope in one simple thing. Look at verse 2. Divide your portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If, if you're an investor in anything, you understand this is the simple principle of financial investing diversification. Anyone who has managed any kind of stock portfolio, can you believe Solomon's talking about this? will tell you, don't put everything in one place. And that's exactly what he says in verse 2. Divide it. Seven, eight. Wise warning. No investment. Remember, we're talking about risk. No investment is risk-free or guaranteed. So Solomon includes and encourages diversification of his own resources so that you have safety in times of trouble. I think it's interesting that the diversification is that diversification, rather, is the most time-tested advice that any wise and successful financial advisor will give anyone. But please note, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme, but a strategy of wisdom that will help us sleep when we have earnings. Now, I'm not going to take this verse further than it, than it goes. I know people, some people are saying, look, I'm, tr I'm trying to, especially our college students, I I'm just trying to find a hamburger today. I I'm not trying to invest in foreign commodities. This is not talking about investing in Japan or China or Russia or Europe. This is not, the, the, the principle is don't put all of your financial hope in one place. It's very simple. You may something, say something like, yeah, but that was... 3,000 years ago, I don't invest. I'm barely surviving. Or maybe I'll remember that advice someday when it applies. I think there's some practical applications that we can find here, implications from the text that are maybe subtle but still under the umbrella of this. First of all, be wise with, with your paychecks. In other words, don't put everything in one place. Now, we have banks that are you know, um, insured by the government, and that's something that Solomon didn't even have in his day. If you came and stole the gold, you didn't have your money. It wasn't insured by anything. But being wise with our paychecks, making sure that not too much is going into one category. You know what the, all of this indicates is having, having a good handle and good control on what money is coming in and where the money is going when it goes out. Disciplining ourselves to save and to invest. Controlling debt. Giving sacrificially to God. The kingdom of God is the best and most important investment. And guess what? This is the only investment that I can think of this, with our money that's completely risk-free. Even if we gave into the mission agencies, even if we gave into a church that misused our money, God doesn't hold us accountable for what they do. He holds us accountable for our hearts. It's completely risk-free. Paul told the Corinthians, it's pure joy, just pure joy to be sacrificial to the Lord. A second safeguard for managing the risks of a broken world. Be decisive in your uncertainties. 
This is interesting. Be decisive in your uncertainties. In other words, don't be paralyzed by question. I've given you some, some little bullet points underneath this as just a, um, a way of kind of crystallizing it for yourself. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Here, don't be paralyzed by questions. Look at verse 3. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. There's no doubt that the future is uncertain. There's no doubt that the future is full of uncertain risks, even tragedies, even disasters. But these two verses deal with such uncertainties and how to act in light of not being in light of the future. It's okay to not know what's going to happen, but we can still be faithful. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. When God ordains the time of calamity, it cannot be avoided. Furthermore, it is entirely unpredictable, just like predicting the weather. Now, we have weathermen today. We have the weather. We have a channel, the weather channel, which might be my favorite channel. It's just interesting to see what God is doing with the winds and the rains and the snows and stuff. Solomon didn't have this. They got up in the morning, and as best as they could, they looked at the eastern sky and the western sky and the northern sky and the southern sky and tried to figure it out. Most weather around the world comes out of the north or the northwest the west or the northwest, actually. And when it doesn't, you know that there's, there's fronts or there's swirling things. They, they figured things like out. Job understood things like that. But we can't look at these people and say, oh, those poor guys, they don't know. We, we know the weather and they don't. Really? I think the most secure job, if you, students, if you want to find a job with absolute security where you have to have no skill and never be right, be a weatherman. I mean, think about this. They show up on the news every night, and they're not right, and they have a job the next day. A little bitter about that. We just don't know. But it's also a metaphor for the times of calamity when the storm comes. Clouds are full. That's a, that's a metaphor for flooding and damage and problems. Whether a tree falls from the south... I'm sorry, it's just kind of funny. From the south, from the north, whatever tree falls, there it lies. Doris Day. Right? Whatever will be, will be. You can almost hear Solomon singing that. Don't ever tell Solomon when we get to heaven that I said that, okay? He switches to the example also of of, uh, of sowing and reaping in a harvest. He's, he's urging us not to sit around and wait for the most opportune time to work, but to be constantly diligent. Future is way beyond our control, just, the act, just as the acts of God and nature are beyond completely our control. The falling of rain, the uprooting of a tree by a gale. So waiting for just the right moment to plant when there's no wind to blow away the seed or, or to reap, when there's no wind or clouds to be threatening the ripening harvest, that would be inactivity. You know what Solomon's saying? If it's raining outside and there's work to do, get wet. If there's work to do in the morning, get up. If you have to stay up late, then lose sleep. That's what he's saying. Inactivity is, is such a tool of the devil. Be decisive. Do what you can do, and don't let things that are uncertain paralyze you, Solomon says, from doing what's responsible. 
We say it over and over. Don't have an Eeyore complex. Well, I can't clean that room today. I've got a hangnail. You don't just do it. Do something. Do what's responsible. Don't be paralyzed by questions. Don't be a procrastinator, I think, is here. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it later. Boy, the ethic of work is all over the book of Ecclesiastes and is such an accent right here. Do the reaping and do, do the harvesting when it's time to harvest. Do the planting when it's time to plant and don't be irresponsible. What if it's raining outside? Then get wet. That's Solomon's advice. Making good decisions is so important. My mentor, John MacArthur, said it so many times. I can't count how many times he said it. In church, in staff meetings, in elders retreats, in elders meetings, all simple advice. A leader is not defined, you can say a Christian is not defined by his first decision. Because sometimes we make bad decisions. But a responsible leader, whether it's a mom, whether it's a brother or sister, whether it's a father, whether it's a pastor, a leader, an employer, an employee, a leader is always defined by his second decision. If the first decision was wrong, your second decision now becomes critical that you correct it. I think that's what is in mind with Solomon here. Be responsible. Just do something, and if it's the wrong thing, then do something else. But don't be paralyzed by inactivity. That's the point. A third safeguard for managing the risks of a broken world. Verse 5. Be trusting in your ignorance. Not trusting your ignorance, but trusting in the midst of your ignorance. Verse 5. Just as you do not know the path of the wind or how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Let's break that down. Just as you do not know the path of the wind. This is a picture of a farmer who postpones what he needs to to do for fear of inclement weather. Maybe the wind will be too strong. Maybe it will rain. Maybe it won't rain. Maybe there's no wind. In other words, they're waiting for the perfect conditions looking to be active. He says, you've got to trust what's right and do what's right, even if you don't know what weather's happening tomorrow. You don't know the path of the wind. You know where it's going to come, so be active. (laughs) And then he gets to this. This is one of my favorite parts. And how uh, how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman. Remember Psalm 139? I love this section of Psalm 139. David says, for you formed my inward parts. He's David speaking to God. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I love that word wove. It literally means stitched me together. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, my body, it was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. For your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all my days written, the days that were ordained for me when it was not yet there was one of them. He looks at that and he says, How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I wake, I'm still with you. You know, Solomon didn't have ultrasound machines. Or now they have the 3D machines. 
I mean, this is incredible technology. Now, we're not violating Psalm 139 if we see a, a fetus being formed. It's, it's an amazing thing to see that. You know, I, I remember with Kim going in and our first appointment with Luke, who we didn't know was Luke. He was either going to be Luke or Anna. We didn't know. We kept, the, we kept Anna for a long time, and Anna never came. And then we met Anna here at, at church, so we never got an Anna. I remember going in, and we were all excited. This is our first ultrasound, and you know, they get that thing, and they get this wet stuff, and they move it around, and then the doctor gets real excited. There it is! This is your child! And I looked, and my wife and I had made a lima bean. And I tried to get excited. I, I really tried. Yay, honey. It's a, it's a, it looks like a lima bean. And it's a very fuzzy lima bean. And the doctor kept moving the wand and, and saying, oh, there it is. And it wasn't helping. It was not getting any better. So if you have those 3D things, good on you. Progress, though, and seeing those ultrasounds and watching our little baby develop was Unbelievable that God would do that. But Solomon didn't have that opportunity. He said, you don't know how, how this comes together, how bones are formed. And I would suggest, even though we have this technology, we still don't know how bones are formed. One of my uh, dear friends, is uh, uh, the, he was the chief of staff at Glendale Adventist Hospital in California. He delivered two of our sons. He's a, a, a wonderful Christian uh, obstetrician and uh, OBGYN, great man. And I said, tell, tell me, I asked him one time, we were having lunch, I said, what, what is most fascinating to you about the development of, of life in the womb? And I didn't know what he would say, but this was interesting. Um, Fred, you might appreciate this. He said, the fact that arteries and veins can be created and then be hollow. I, mean, I wasn't expecting that. But think of the thousands of capillaries, these, these little blood vessels. They're created by God, and then they're, then they're hollow and transporting blood. How does that work? How does that work? If you stretch your mind around it, the answer has to be, I, I don't know. I don't know how it works. And Solomon's saying, yep, that's kind of how life is. God's up to things that you don't see and you don't understand. The last half of the verse gives explanation of what Solomon is illustrating. So, you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. No one really knows all the intricacies. I shouldn't say all. Many of the intricacies of how God works. We study this in Romans 8, 28, right? He uses all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So, even when we see things that we know he's doing... When we look at other things, we still know he's doing something. I mean, are you confident in the fact that God is always at work in and around and through and for you? Are you confident of that? That he never says whoops. That he never says uh-oh. That he's never had a mulligan. Everything is on track. That's where Solomon's climaxing here to say, listen, God is good. And he's trustworthy. And when you don't know, you still can trust that he's working. He makes all things. He's pressing that issue here. The unpredictability of the wind, the mastery of, develop, of the developing fetus are merely examples of 
how God works in secret without us even knowing what he's doing. Point is simple. Some aspects of God's work on earth are, are that they defy explanation. The commentator Michael Eaton in his excellent commentary on Ecclesiastes, if you want to study this book on your own, that's probably one of the one volume uh, books I would encourage you to get. Michael Eaton says, the life of faith does not remove the problem of ignorance. Rather, it enables us to live within it. I love this sentence. Faith flourishes in the mystery of providence. It does not abolish it. End quote. So what do we do practically? We remember God. We remember God. Look, there are things happening in my life, in our family's life, in our kids' life, even this week. And it was so critical for me to stop and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, God. You don't even have to finish the sentence. Wait a minute, God. And that should be enough to realign our priorities and our trust and our hope. His timing is perfect. His goodness is gracious. Studying and meditating on the sovereignty of God might be the most important way you could make your soul healthy. Which leads us to the fourth Safeguard for managing the risks of a broken world. Be responsible in your responsibilities. In other words, don't just sit there, do something. Be responsible in your responsibilities. Verse 6, sow your seed in the morning. Remember, he's coming back to the same issue he's talked about. Sow your seed in the morning. Do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed or whether both of them alike will be good. The heart of this verse really goes back and captures this idea of rain and harvest and sowing and reaping. But the key is in the phrase, do not be idle. If you underline things in your your Bible, that's a huge passage, a huge phrase to underline. Do not be idle. Simply a summary and wrap-up of this whole section with a practical admonition in the middle. Don't be idle. Don't do nothing which is the double negative saying, do something. The point is, if, if we're never sure which endeavors will succeed, whether it's morning or evening, because it all depends on the control and providence of a sovereign God, which we know, then we should focus on what we, what's at hand and don't dwell on what we don't know. It's also a subtle little inference to say, are you doing or are you worrying Implementing the do it now principle, I think, is right at the heart of this. Do it now. Have a plan. Do the hard things first. Do them excellently. Map our lives and submit to the providence of God. Listen, two, these two examples from maritime trade in verses 1 and 2, seafaring trading and investing, and from farming, verses 3 and 4 and 6, King Solomon urges us toward constant, diligent effort and prudent, diversified investment of energies and resources, recognizing that all is in God's sovereign control. Do your best and rest in God. And even if you do your best, and even if you rest in God, it still might not prove to give all that we want in this life. And that's okay because it reminds us that this life is not eternity. So let's put them all together. How do you manage the risks of a broken world? 
Be sensible with your resources. Don't put all your eggs in one basket, in other words. Be decisive in your uncertainties. Don't be paralyzed by your questions. Be trusting in your ignorance. Don't forget that God is in control. And be responsible in your responsibilities. Don't just sit there, Solomon says. Do something. This is just great counsel and great advice. You know what else it is? It's simple. It's simple. You know what this passage attacks? It attacks laziness and indifference. All of us struggle with being lazy and indifferent, do we not? All of us struggle realigning our priorities in a macro sense, this week, this month, this year, this decade, and in a micro sense, this hour, this minute, this decision that's before me. The question is, how does gospel truth, the sovereign God who gave his son to die for the sins of those who had believed, who rose from the dead, and it is sitting right now at the right hand of the Father, at the same time present with me in his permanent abiding presence, how does that make a difference with my responsibilities that are right before me? Well, it should make all the difference. We remember God when we look at the risks of a broken world. You do not know the activity of God who makes all things. So we do what we know to do and we leave the rest to God. This is not let go and let God. This is get busy and let God. We don't let go of anything. We put our shoulder to the plow. We put our, our mind to the task. We problem solve. We fix things. We solve the problem. We try to be faithful. We try to be responsible. That's what it means to trust in God. And when things don't go, as we hope they would, when things don't go, as we had planned, we can still back up. That's, by the way, the next chapter and a half that he's going to talk about. We can still back up and say with Solomon, I know it will be well for those who trust God, those who trust him with their whole heart. It's managing the risks of a broken world, but can I just add this? The greatest risk of all of life is living one day, much less your whole lifetime, without Jesus Christ. That's the greatest risk. Uh, Jonathan Edwards says to the young people, so many of you think I'm going to put God off until tomorrow or next week or next year. And every day you put him off, your heart becomes more callous and hard to him. So Solomon will say in verse 1 of chapter 12, remember your creator when you're young. Before the evil days come and you say, I have no delight in them. I believe God can save you, a person at the end of his life a thief on a cross, seen it happen. I've prayed with people who've given their life to Christ hours before their death. But I'm also very aware of the reality that Romans 1 says, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. And Solomon says, get your life right with the Lord when you're young because it's harder when you get old and develop habits that are stubborn toward the Lord. So if I could just turn to the, to the younger people. And you can define that any way you want. Today is the day to repent. Today is the day for salvation. Spurgeon was right. Tomorrow is the devil's day. And today is the Lord's. Taking advantage of the truth we've been given. Give it, taking advantage of the, the precious friends that surround us who believe the truth that we need so much is 
is overwhelming. I mean, I've traveled in different places in the world and, and seen desperate situations where there was no truth available. Let me just beg you again. The greatest risk of all living is to live life without Christ. 